morning, campers. Thanks for tuning in. It's Giving Tuesday. You can give us at KUCI.org. The tab is there. Donate there on our website. Good morning. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, welcoming you to the November 30, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, returning to the show is Rebecca Robles, a Hachiman tribal member, culture bear, and activist, fielding many earnest queries from yours truly. The extended version of the interview will include her takes on how the Biden cabinet level leaders are advancing Native peoples and more. And in the second segment today, you're going to hear from Christine Goodwin, a regional advocacy manager at Compassionate Choices. She takes stock of the improvement and extension of California's end of life option. We'll be, we're going to start the show right away. My first guest today is Rebecca Robles, an Ahatman tribal member, culture bearer, and activist. She's continued the preservation of sacred sites started by her mother and has continued as well the Ancestor Walk, a pilgrimage to Ahatman sacred and culture sites, culminating with the healing ceremony at Pavugna in Long Beach. She's completed both an associate the science in Long Beach City College, registered nurse from Long Beach, and her BA at North Arizona University in business administration. With her commitment the last 20 years to preservation of sacred lands as a way of preserving culture and promoting understanding and appreciation for Ahatman Lifeways, she will have much to say about recent victories in securing new assurances locally, as well as the Biden cabinet's leadership on Native people's affairs. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Rebecca Robles. Thank you for having me. I'm well, happy to be here, Claudia. Well, thank you. Let's start with, does this year, this month, commemorating National Native American Heritage, do you feel more heard even though intellectually honest history teaching has become a political wedge? Well, I do feel more heard. I actually feel exhausted. There were so many opportunities to speak this month. You know, I was and most of my peers were deluged with requests to speak for interviews from college, students, news media. And I'm very, very happy for it. And I'm very happy for this opportunity to tell our truth. But I wish that it would continue in December, January, and the rest of the month, and so not just be for the month of November, for Native American Heritage Day, and for Thanksgiving, because people often want to talk about it at this time. And so I do feel like it's the beginning. It's the tip of the iceberg. I see all of society as asking for a more truthful uh, narrative, you know, like to move away from the sugar-coated version and to speak the truth. I see it with um, the Black Lives Matter. I see it with the youth. I see it with all of us. And so I do think that we're moving in the right direction. So speaking of Black Lives Matter, do you see that the work that Hannah Nicole Jones and others are doing are bringing 
indigenous issues along with them in Black Lives Matter consideration because of the whole white supremacy theme really being directed at suppressing all other non-white cultures. I do see it. And we see ourselves as allies. You know, we see ourselves as people of color moving towards a greater vision of the honest telling of history, but also making life more livable, making life more just, making sure, because many people are, do, you know, many people have suffered through COVID, through the economic downturn. Many, many people are living in poverty. And often it's uh, the people of color, the urban Blacks, the urban Indigenous people, the people on reservations. And so the Black Lives Matter and Indigenous people, I we consider ourselves allies and working towards the same goals of you know, the goals that our country, ha- this country has set, you know, like justice for everyone, you know, being able to not just survive, but to thrive. And that's what I see about, I see, especially the youth and the activists are taking it and really holding people, holding the governments, the administrations, the politicians, the institutions to make it more than just words. And I must say it's taken 400 years of the original European settlers' efforts, they've kept that alliance from ever being forged, separating the enslaved from the indigenous peoples so that that the white supremacy, that the white, the European hierarchy would take hold in the colonies. So sort of this alliance, it was always sort of trying to take hold, but this may be a new era, maybe. So let's talk now about the land acknowledgements. When you were on a year ago on this program, you gave a land acknowledgement. I asked Jacqueline Keeler, Dine Yangtawan, Dakota member and journalist, who took issue with gestures of giving land acknowledgements. I want to know how you respond to Jackie Keeler's critiques. You know, I didn't see her critique, but what I suspect is that she wants to be sure that it's not just people going through the motion. She wants yes. us to live it. She wants us to, you know, it's easy. Words are easy to say. We acknowledge that we're on the traditional homelands of the Ahashiman and Tongva people who lived here since time immemorial. But it's really, it's much, much different to really support us when we need it. Like when we're fighting to protect a sacred site or when we're working to get political representation, you know, in a more favorable way. And so what I would imagine is that what Jackie was taking issue is don't just make it words, you know, live it, support Native Americans, support all these. What I've seen is the courageousness that people have taken going to the streets, all those people in Minnesota working to stop the pipelines from going, you know, across the rivers, the people up in Canada who are working to, you know, stop the natural gas, the destruction of the rainforests up there. It's very easy to do a land acknowledgement, but it's very, what they're doing is putting their lives on the line. What they're disrupting their lives, they're disrupting their jobs, and they're going and they're taking action. So I think that land acknowledgements are important, But I do think that supporting Indigenous people where they are in our daily lives 
in surviving in the modern world, in recovering our languages, in getting land back, in even changing what people think about, you know, their stereotypes, the stereotypes that they hold in their head, really challenge that on a personal level. So that's my take on land acknowledgments. Thank you. So, and you, so you still give them. Um, you, have, give them. you always have been giving them and you will continue to give them with perhaps, so maybe there's a hierarchy, Rebecca, a hierarchy of land acknowledgments that give more assignments when mm-hmm. acknowledgement is taking place. And what I think is a crucial, one of the core values of indigenous people, whether you're from Orange County or from the Dakotas, or from Oaxaca, Mexico, or whether you're from the Arctic or Peru. It's that we people live in a reciprocal relationship with Mother Earth, and we consider Mother Earth to be an entity, a living entity. And so that's not the way, you know, the corporations and the government and your average American person sees the earth. Since the colonists came, the earth was always something to dominate and then just reap the benefit from. And so that's a very big conflict. And so I think that the land acknowledgments are important because they remind people we see the earth as different. We see our surroundings as different. We see each entity, each bird, each deer, each coyote as being a part of the cosmology and having an important part of it. And so in the land acknowledgement, we're asking people, hey, this is how we think. You know, this is what we're trying. We've experienced, you say, for 400 years. But in California, our first interaction with the Europeans, they came in the 15 and 1600s, but they came by boat. And often there wasn't land expedition. Our first land expedition was 1769, the Portola expedition. And so that's 250 to 300 years ago. It's a very short chunk of time. We're trying to ask people, the public, to see the world the way we see it. Uh, Like from my indigenous point of view, the corporations, the publics, the government, many, many people have gone too far in not realizing our connectedness, our connectedness to the earth, the water supply, the sky, and also to each other and all the animals. You know, we call each other our relatives, you know, and so we as human beings have a big responsibility to take care of things and not just see things as potential for wealth, potential for enriching our governments or us as individuals. So it's a whole, in the land acknowledgement, and I think that that does touch on, we do touch on it, that we have a different cosmology, a different way of thinking, a different way of being in the world. And I just want to point, the point of my bringing up the four centuries is the interaction between indigenous peoples and the enslaved individuals that the European colonists were trying very hard to create a wedge in that alliance never occurring. But I do certainly acknowledge that the Europeans arrived earlier, but I'm talking about the arrival of slaves and the the potential for slaves and indigenous people to overthrow the European dominant political, social culture there. So 
I, and yes, and thank you for that. And that was lovely about all the layers. And maybe, maybe when I'm hearing them, maybe this is a, an assignment that you can, you're giving me, Rebecca, is that when I hear them in a group setting, I can speak up or I can confer and participate in some way to say the land acknowledgement we're hearing or we're going to hear is a foundation and there are steps that need to be taken to operationalize what seeding is being requested in the acknowledgement, seeding a sovereignty that has been neglected or something. There's a role. Take the foundation and operationalize it, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. It's, oh. not, it, it's just the beginning. Like you say, it's a seed. It's a seed of awareness. Thank you. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Rebecca Robles and a Hutchman tribal member, culture bear. You can hear her talk about that and an activist. We're going to speak now to the victories, if that's not too European of a construct, it may be that the sacred site of the Pavunga Tongva Nation members call at the Cal State Long Beach property. It's the Pavunga site, is it, Rebecca? Yes. Okay. So, so tell, uh, yes. So, uh, uh, so Puvungna is a very, very important site to uh, the Ahashiman and the Tongva people. It's a shared site, and it's in our language, it means the gathering place. And it was, it's on the campus of Cal State Long Beach. In prehistory times, it was a 500 acre village, and it was all of Cal State Long Beach. It extended south to the wetlands, the Los Cerritos wetlands, and the Seal Beach area and is called a creation site or an immersion site because in our oral tradition, and then there was an ethno history written by Boscana, who was a, a priest at San Juan Capistrano in the early 1800s. And he wrote about our the Ahashman people's life ways, our culture, our beliefs, and about our sites. And at Povungna, there were two deities that came to us. And it was at that place that we changed from being spiritual beings to physical beings. And it wasn't just us who changed. All of creation were changed at that place. We became the people, you know, all the animals became the different animals, all the plants, all the trees, everything like that. And so everything was changed at that site. And then the deity, his name was Weot, he left. And another deity came, and his name was Kenichinich. And Kanichanich, he's also known as a lawgiver. He taught the people what the rules were for living, you know, how to be human beings, what our responsibilities were, and what we needed to do to take care of our family, each other, and the world to continue. So it's a very important, important place. And then it has other designations that make it important in, you know, like, it's listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It's listed on the Native American Heritage Commission sacred lands file as a sacred site. And so we know it to be an important place because our history tells us that it's our creation site. And then we know it to be a place where there are human ancestor remains. And we know it to be important because we continue to go there to do ceremony there to pray there. And the Ancestor Walk, we've been doing it for 20 years. My mother started it, my mother in the community. And it's an active ceremonial site. 
It's also one of our contemporary sites where we've had a lot of losses, loss of our lands. In California, there were 18 treaties. The treaties were not ratified. Gold was found right at that time. And so we, the Hashman people, are not federally recognized. We don't have a reservation. And so we have this very interesting relationship with the land. We have these sites that are 10,000 or more year old sites, and we have this deep respect, reverence, love for these sites, and yet we have limited access to them and ability to protect them. In 1993, the university, there's 22 acres remaining of Pavungna. And And of the 500 that you mentioned. Yes, 22 acres that are undeveloped. In 1993, the university wanted to build a strip mall and housing on Pavungna. And so at that time, the community my mother, many other people, they got the Native American Heritage Commission involved, the Native American Heritage Commission and the ACLU and the Center for Constitutional Law filed a lawsuit on religious freedom grounds and stopped the building on the on the university. Since that time, there was, you know, like it was it was a definite win for us, but there was never like a, an agreement to protect the land. And so there were three or four presidents from 1993 till then. And I'm talking about college presidents. And some of them said, during my tenure, there'll be no building on this land. This land will be protected. And then fast forward to 2019, the university dumped 6,400 cubic yards of soils on Puvungna. Now, I want to say when we, we don't even drive on the Puvungna you know, we, it's a, it's a delicate sacred site. It's an archeological site. And, you know, we know there's ancestor remains. We know that, that it's a delicate archeological site. And so my tribe, Wadena Band of Mission Indians under Ballardis and then California Cultural Resource Preservation Alliance, we contacted every lawyer we knew and we were going to file a lawsuit. And this is in September of 2019. And on the same day, on the same day that the soils were being dumped, the governor was speaking, you know, speaking and apologizing for the historic treatment of California Indians historically. And he established a Truth and Healing Advisory Board. And so what was happening in Long Beach and what was happening in Sacramento, they were directly at odds. And so, Rebecca, can I just take pause for one moment? You said that soil was dumped. Can you characterize it though? It was it was a good deal of kind of solid waste in soil. So it's an, uh, the desecration is really it's quite vivid. Yeah, it was construction soil. They were building a dorm a quarter of a mile north, and the way they build now, they dig like twelve foot piers that are going to be the foundation, and they they dig multiple holes, and so they dumped for eight hours, if that gives you the amount of soil. And they create, they put plastic sheeting down. It should have been geocloth. And then they deposited mounds of soil, berms of soil. And so we contacted a lawyer. We were ready to file an injunction. We were ready to file our injunction on Friday, on Wednesday, they were notif- we were notified that the university would stop the dumping of this, you know, no further dumping. And so the lawsuit we filed was a CEQA lawsuit, California Environmental Quality Act. And the basis of it was that the university 
they had an environmental impact report and they changed the environmental impact report in July of 2019, but they did not notify the tribal, the affiliated tribal groups. They didn't notify them, they didn't consult with them, and that's the basis of the lawsuit. They were consulting with an in-house group of Native American and administrative people in the university. And so we worked for two years. We settled in September of 2013. The university, they agreed to put a portion of the 22 acres into a conservation easement. They agreed to not build ever on the university, on the Pavongna site. They agreed that the conservation easement would be handed over to a land trust in two years. And so we're moving from an adversarial relationship with the university to a more cooperative relationship with the university. As part of the settlement, we had to agree to not force them to remove the soils. Now, the soils, we had a geologist do soil testing and do reports. And there was always naturally occurring arsenic in the soils. But now, because of the amount of soils that were dumped on the site, the arsenic, it's considered contaminated. So it's a concentration. Because of the, the concentration. Natural occurrence. Oh, wow. Exactly. And so we had to trade off. We had to say, okay, we won't make you, university, remove that soil. But if we remove the soil, we can remove the soil. We'll pay for it. If we got sued them and for them to remove the soil, the conservation easement would be rescinded. So we had a hard decision to make. You know, they played really hardball. And so, like I said, we're moving forward. You know, like we have at least 10 to 15 acres of land that was preserved on Pavongna. Of the 22, then it was only 10 to 15 acres that are preserved. Right, right. It right. just keeps getting smaller, Rebecca. It does. And we fight in every way we know, you know, we fight in it. And you were talking about why it's been so challenging for Indian people and people of color. It's because the racism is really built into the institutions, you know, like, why would they not apologize and say, oh, we made a mistake, you know, like, we're going to return the 22 acres, we'll work with you. But we're not deterred, you know, it's still a victory. It's still a victory. And we're assured that what we settled for is more than we would have achieved if we had taken it to court. And if you really think about it, 10 to 15 acres in Long Beach as a park in a conservation easement, you know, it's it's a victory. You know, it's... But, it's but Rebecca, what will be the land use for the remaining portion of that 22-acre parcel? Do you have... A commitment from the Cal State University system that they won't build on it. Yes, they won't build on it. And they won't build adjacent property. Right. Yes, we do. And that's yeah, we perpetuity were... as well. That's protection. Yes. Yes. And it continues to hold its national register status and on the sacred lands. All um, twenty-two acres. Uh huh. And so you're right. We were very disappointed in the settlement, but it, we were assured that it was the best we could get. And this is the living, uh, this is our reality as Native Americans, as descendants of this sacred site, as a sacred site that has a national register status and, uh, and listed on the sacred lands. It's a tough fight. It's uphill. It makes you realize that 
The system isn't meant to protect us. The system is meant to diminish us, you know, and. And and yes, and I'm hearing also when you're talking about the heritage of this site, that is the sort of transformative part of the indigenous history, the creation site. And then I want to say that there is a manifestation there of an, into what the plants are now, into what the, the organisms, the living beings are now. And so that manifest destiny sort of flips that story, that origin story, and it sort of builds in that the European projection of a supreme cultural history. So there's, there's so many layers of a hierarchy of what, what manifestation really matters and what does it, the landscape look to us like now? Who's getting manifested? That, that right. must really smart. And then it does smart. And then you realize, then one realizes, I realize, you know, that this sacred site work, it's really, you know, like, because it is based in spiritual, it is based in culture. It's a cultural, a cultural collision. And it's not just here at Puvungna. You know, you look, because I always look and I say, well, if we were a federally recognized tribe, we'd have more money, we'd be able to to fight. And then you look at places like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Save the Peaks. About 10 years ago, the ski lift and the city of Flagstaff wanted to use reclaimed water to make artificial snow on the San Francisco peak. The Navajo Nation and the Hopi and the Apache, those are sacred mountains. They, they have, there are four sacred mountains in that vicinity. And so they did a lawsuit to stop it. And it was multiple tribes, federally recognized tribes, the Navajo tribe, the Hopi tribe, you know, Sierra Club, multiple entities, Center for uh, Diversity, uh, Center for Biological Diversity, and they won on the local level. And then it went to the federal court, the District 3 court, and they lost. It was overturned. And then you look at you look at DAPL, you look at the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, there couldn't have been a bigger call for action, a bigger response to that you know, and they're a federally recognized tribe. And you had, you know, Jane Fonda out there. You had, you know, all this uh, Mark Garofalo. You had much, you know, media that pipeline went through. And so, and now it was rescinded, but it actually, that portion was actually built. And so it's a very uphill battle to protect our sacred sites for indigenous people. You know, Oak Flat, and that's an Apache sacred site in um, Arizona. It's where puberty ceremonies are done. That's a federally recognized tribe. They're fighting to prevent a an out-of-country corporate entity from getting lease, leasing that area to do copper mining. And that copper mining will destroy the site. So nationwide, we face these challenges that are like... Almost, almost inhumane, you know, this David, these David and Goliath challenges, and we just keep fighting it because it's crucial to our survival. You know, it's crucial to who we are as Indigenous people. And there's the sacred element, there's the survival element of if the water is fouled, contaminated, then in any of those basins that you're talking about, then it's it does an entire population eventually. Right. It will do exactly. 
Exactly. So you were talking also about the um, background, the parties that were a part of the settlement in September of this year. Do you want to talk about the Tongva not being parties in the Pavungna? I'd just like to say is that they did not join the lawsuit. Some of the groups were supporters of ours, but they did not join the lawsuit. We took the lead on the lawsuit, but the site is a joint use area and our win is for the Tongva people and their descendants also. Mm -hmm. And so we look forward to restoring the land and continuing to maintain its sacredness for the Ahashiman and the Tongva community. Thank you. So with that, I want to thank you, Claudia, for this, for having me as a guest. It was very informative. I'd like to wish everybody a happy fall and send you off with thoughts of hopefulness because I see that we've lived through very, you know, the COVID's been challenging. The holidays sometimes are challenging. And so with that, I just want to thank you, Claudia, for having me as your guest. I thank you, Rebecca Robles, for being on my show. Listeners can hear that you're being notified of incoming requests for your attention during the last day of the commemoration of Native peoples in the new world here. So it is such a privilege. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. My guest was Rebecca Robles and a Hutterman tribal member, a culture bear and activist covering local to national perspectives of preserving indigenous peoples, culture and health legacies. We'll be right back with Christina Goodwin, Regional Advocacy Manager for Compassion and Choices, about the recent passage of the new End of Life Options Act. Stay close. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Christina Goodwin. She brings news from the recent California legislative session in her capacity as the California Hawaii State Manager for Compassion and Choices and Compassion Choices Action Network. That's the organization and their lobbying arms. So we mentioned them both separately. Christina has worked to expand patient-centered and patient-directed end-of-life care for the past 13 years. And she was an integral member of the team toward passage of the California End of Life Option Act and improve the law as well as the Hawaii Our Care and Our Choice Act. In her current capacity, she works to improve access to these laws and educate the general public and healthcare systems about all end of life options. But the End of Life Option Act is distinguished from the plural use of options and what she's worked on. Christina completed her BA in environmental studies from Sonoma State University and her master's of science in organizational leadership from the University of Redlands. She comes to us today from Marin County. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Christina Goodwin. Thank you so much for having me today, Claudia. Well, congratulations on your recent legislative, I'm going to put it plural, successes in the California 
legislature. So please update the listeners. I know some people are familiar with what the 2016 Act did, but we're going to speak to all listeners who are not familiar with the 2016 Act, to those that are and aren't familiar in what had passed this fall. So tell us sort of what are the salient changes that took effect this round in 2021? Yeah, just to quickly do an overview for the listeners, the End of Life Option Act, it's the, a law that went into effect in 2016, and an individual who is terminally ill is able to request a medication from their doctor to die peacefully in their sleep. And so what happened during this past legislative session is we had SB 380, which was authored by Senator Susan Talamantis Eggman and Assemblymember Jim Wood, and it makes several changes to the End of Life Option Act. I would say probably the biggest change is that it reduces the mandatory minimum 15-day waiting period down to 48 hours for all eligible patients. And just to quickly uh, talk about the 15-day waiting period, what we found is that it is a suffering period for a lot of individuals, and they end up not being able to survive the 15-day waiting period. So that 48-hour waiting period is a really big improvement to the law. Another change is that it requires healthcare systems and hospices to post their medical aid and dying policy on their website. And we are starting to do outreach and education to the healthcare systems and hospices to let them know about this change to the law and are providing sample policies to them so that they can post those policies on their website. We hope that this will create greater access so that individuals who are looking for information about the End of Life Option Act are able to find supportive facilities. And, and we'll open up that some oh. more in, later in the interview. You're listing all of the salient uh, changes, but that is in play with the hospitals in Orange County. So I'll, we'll, we'll visit that in greater detail after you've listed the, uh, the other major changes. Yeah, I would say um, probably another big change is that it clarifies that the first oral request must be documented in a patient's medical record even if the physician chooses not to support the patient in this option. And then the physician does have to transfer that medical record to another physician if they will not support them in the End of Life Option Act. So that is another big change as well. There's a couple other changes to the law, one of which is the final attestation form. And that is something that a patient was supposed to fill out 24 hours before they take before ingesting the medication. And what we found is a, a redundant form. The person has already gone through two oral requests and a written request. So the attestation form has been removed um, because of SB 380. So I'd like to talk about what the hospitals do to post their policies because they are not created equally as far as their charters for what they consider are the services that they are in the business of providing. And the end of life really maps out different philosophies of healthcare by, especially we're talking about the Catholic 
hospital systems in Orange County, as well as around the state, and some people in the stock taking of the legislative session with the passage of the End of Life Option Act, that there were people that ended up in a hospital where their wishes were not honored. I use that word advisedly. So talk about how that's going to be translated in our Orange County hospitals, where people are going to look for that, what languages are they posted in, and other kinds of ways of, you you were talking about access, but it's also, it's a matter of enforcing transparency too. Yes, of course, transparency is a big thing. And I will say that 97% of religious hospitals in California do not allow their doctors to practice medical aid in dying. So that can be a big issue for somebody who is terminally ill and has a doctor who will not support them in this process. It's our hope that by having the healthcare system or the hospice putting their policy up on their website. It will help with that transparency. It will help with the person who is trying to access care so that they can find a supportive doctor. Like I said, we have been sending out information to healthcare systems and hospices. We are including sample policies. We do understand that some uh, healthcare systems or hospices will not support their patient in this option. But one of the amendments that I spoke about briefly is that even if the physician will not support them in this process, they still have to document that first request. So if a patient is created, okay. Yeah. So if a, a patient does meet with their doctor who will not support them, the doctor will still record that first request, um, which gets the clock rolling. And then the patient will then get that their medical record transferred to another physician who will help them with the process. So at least they can start the clock that way. And, you know, hopefully that will create better access for individuals who are trying to access the end of life option act. And for some people, what we find is that they wait too long to try and receive the medication and Kaiser Southern California did a study in 2019, and it showed that one third of the individuals did not survive that 15 day waiting period. So what we do advise people is to talk to your doctor now to find out, even if you're not terminally ill, to talk with your doctor to see if they would support you in this option if you did become terminally ill. And, you know, it's much easier to change doctors now than to wait when you are terminally ill. And this law, I won't make the presumption that um, it would have, we have a a storyteller, Amanda Viegas, who lives down in the Los Angeles area and her husband, Chris Davis, ended up at a hospice that did not help him with this option, even though he wanted it. And so he ended up having a death that he did not want to have. And so hopefully for people like Amanda and like Chris, who want this option, you know, hopefully the facilities by putting up their policy on their website, it will help create better transparency. So when you were involved in the legislative process, moving this bill, SB 380, so were you conferring with people that were lobbying against passage of the End of Life Option Act? 
were you talking with them about, they're not supporting legislation, but are you getting ideas from them? What kind of wording, what kind of step taking is going to solidify that care provider to document that wish being registered, the request of medication? Is there, did you work with the lobbyists to get where there was an ironclad kind of language in the legislation that did hold that care provider accountable for the exercising that wish that that step was taken before they referred the patient to a different health care provider. The point is to make sure that they don't miss that window where the patient requested their wish to take those steps. And when a person is requesting the initiating the step taking, they could be anywhere. They could be at their they could be at their doctor's office. They could be at a hospital. What are all the different sort of settings they would be in when these steps are initiated? Yeah. And just going back to your other question, you know, we understand that some physicians may choose to not participate in it, whether it be for religious reasons or other personal reasons. And so even if they are unable or unwilling to participate, they do at a minimum have to record the request in the person's medical record. Um, As far as the different locations, you know, I would say hospitals um, and hospice settings, that is also, you know, a a location, um, a private medical practice. So there's, there's a lot of different options. Okay. So people are aware that, that there's no one particular place. And so the, right. And one, one thing actually with the improvements to the law, it did clarify that an individual can take the medication within a healthcare facility because before um, with the original law, that was not clear. Okay. So that's one of the major, it's considered not changes, but improvements so that people are served. This is that, this is their chapter. They only get one one go at this chapter. So interestingly, and when I saw some stock taking that Compassion and Choices has put on in some webinars, and there's going to be another choice, another chance for people to follow Compassion and Choices webinar on December 9th at 1215 to 115. Put that on your calendars, folks, that the law would have sunset. It would have run out. So the point of the End of Life Option Act 2021 was to continue this. Now, there still is a sunset clause in the law as enacted this fall. So talk about what kind of an opportunity that creates in the future of of bringing on. Talk about that first. Sure. It's not all bad news that there's this (laughs) obligation to keep, uh, to renew it again. Well, it's tricky. I wouldn't say that there is in a real opportunity to the sunset clause. I think for people who are terminally ill or who experienced illness and want this option, having the sunset clause can be challenging for them because we want to ensure that anyone who wants this option can access it. And so we did go into the legislative session this year to try to remove the sunset clause, 
we were fortunately able to improve the law. However, SB 380 does have a 10-year sunset, so it, it would be set to expire at the end of 2031. Because the law goes in effect now on January 1st, 2022, correct? Correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah, the advantage was that the sunset clause extending this, though, it brought more political support to the act that was adopted this last fall. That's the advantage. From a consumer standpoint, there is uncertainty in the future how long people will have this right to exercise. But it, it brought more people along politically, though, right? You saw a lot of people change their disposition. Yeah, going to the legislator this session, I mean, we one person that comes to mind is Dr. Richard Pan, uh, who is in the Senate. He was he's a pediatrician. Was yeah, adamantly opposed to the End of Life Option Act back in 2015. Back then, he sat on the Assembly Health Committee. You know, we weren't able to get his support to move the bill through that committee at that time. And here we are in 2021. And he was actually the one who proposed the change of the 15-day waiting period down to 48 hours. So, wow, um, yes. So, you know, in that sense, did gain some champions, and it also potentially helped create more awareness of the law because doing a legislative campaign, you know, we had letters to the editor in newspapers, and we are ramping up our access campaign to educate healthcare systems and the general public about the improvements to the law. Uh, It's a lot of work to run a campaign. So in that sense, I'm not sure if there's an upside to that. It's, you know, can be exhausting, but we're doing what we can to ensure that people that want this option continue to have it. And we do know that we will have to go back to the legislature at some point to remove the sunset. If you just joined us, my guest is Christina Goodwin, California and Hawaii State Manager for Compassionate Choices and Compassionate Choices Action Network. So it's really interesting that during even the very last lapse, my understanding from the stock taking that Compassionate Choices has offered the public is that there were interactions with family members, survivors of people who were able to exercise the end of option, or people that it was a disaster that per their loved one's last chapter. So they were sort of your, to put it a little too fast, they were your poster families, and they were very effective in bringing the legislators along to supporting the End of Life Option Act, SB 380. Do you want to talk about any one of those that were their appeal was amazing? For sure. And so this legislative session, it was all done virtually. All of our committee hearings, our lobby meetings, our lobby days. And what ended up happening as a result of that is that our supporters and volunteers from across California were able to come out in support of this bill and to meet with their elected officials you know, and just to be a part of the process. So we did virtual lobby days and our storytellers and volunteers were able to meet with, you know, assembly members and senators and to share their story. One that sticks out for me 
and she she testified at several of our committee hearings. Um, her name is Dr. Catherine Forrest. She lives in the Santa Cruz area. She's been such a strong advocate. Uh, she has been an educator about the End of Life Option Act, and she is a prescribing doctor. Like I said, she did testify several times, and she also, as the bill was moving through the legislature, her husband had a very fast-moving form of ALS, and he ended up taking the medication during that time. And what was so surprising for her is that here she had been so involved with helping to get the end-of-life option passed, teaching residents about this option, setting up end-of-life option act departments in UC Stanford, and they ended up struggling uh, trying to access the medication. So it shows that there are, at the time, there are still barriers to accessing the medication, and it shows how challenging it can be. Wow. And also, I guess, Brittany Maidenard, who her spouse was also available right during some of those last meetings, lobbying efforts and all on the floor. Uh, Brittany Maynard had to go to Oregon to exercise her end of life option. She could not do them legally in California. And I guess her husband was on call. A lot of people were speed dialing him on the floor as well, were they not? Yes, we probably would not be where we are today, you know, in the end of life movement without Brittany Menard. And her husband, Dan Diaz, has been so instrumental. He continues to work across the country, working to pass medical aid and dying legislation and helping to improve laws. And Dan has just been an incredible supporter. He was on the phone with Senator Hurtado the morning of the Senate floor session, answering her questions and talking to her about Brittany's story and the fact that they did have to move to Oregon because the End of Life Option Act at the time was not in place. And Senator Hurtado did in fact uh, vote to support the improvements to the law, most likely because of Dan. Did she bring other votes along with her since you were really involved in that whole process? Did Senator Hurtado? Yes. Not that I have specifically heard. I will say that comparing our vote count from this legislative session to, you know, the votes back in 2015, the bill did move through much easier and there was way less discussion or opposition during committee hearings and floor votes compared to what it was like back in 2015. And Compassion Choices was very vigorous in sending us updates on. Time. It was a very long legislative session. I think we started up in February and it went through October. So it was it was a lot. So one thing I want for listeners to listen here and see how important it is when constituents speak out about a measure, talk about that you talked you talk about the storytellers contributing, but you also had people that sent in their letters to the legislatures to be sure to pass SB 380. Talk about that importance every constituent has in moving legislation. Oh, 
it was definitely a heavy lift and I am so grateful to all of our volunteers, our action team members and our storytellers. They were with us the entire way. We were asking our supporters and volunteers to email and call elected officials. They were sharing posts on social media to get people to take action, attending all of our uh, lobby days. People were listening in on committee hearings. There were people writing letters to the editor, anything that they could do to help move this bill. There's the thought that you're just one bad death away from becoming a supporter of this issue. And so many of our supporters and volunteers, you know, that's been the case for them. And so they do it out of um, deep humanity. Yeah. And, and knowing that they would want this option if it ever happened to them. And a small percentage of people end up accessing the End of Life Option Act, but it's for people who... Um, They're overtaken by <laughs> an incredibly a, a perilous terminal condition and that... Yeah, their their disease is killing them. And, you know, this is kind of their final act of taking control at the end of their life. And it's not suicide. Um, It's medical aid in dying. And it's turning off all it's turning off all of the medical advances that prolong life. Correct. Yeah, and these are people, so they're already dying, and this brings them peace and comfort at the end of their life. A lot of them, generally there's a rule of thirds, a third of them end up not taking the medication, but it brings them such a comfort knowing that they have it on hand uh, if they ever needed to take it. And one of our storytellers, and she was just amazing on our virtual lobby days, Julie Stroud, her dad got the medication and he ended up not taking it, but it really made him feel so reassured that he had it in case he ever needed to. That's one third as a third of the other two thirds, the rules of. Yeah. Um, So one third will end up taking the medication and then another third will end up not taking it, but will have comfort knowing that they have this option. And then there's another third that end up not surviving that 15 day waiting period and do not receive the aid in dying medication. Okay. And in, as a final question, it looks like this California end of life option act SB 380 is moving around as a template. The Florida chapter of a comparable type posted this legislative success. So this is a template that's been very useful that other states are considering very seriously at this point, are they not, Christina? Yeah. So once the California law passed back in 2015, you know, the movement has continued to grow to where we have 10 states plus Washington, D.C., which have authorized medical aid in dying. So that's California, Colorado, Hawaii, Montana, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, New Jersey, and Maine. 
And we are active in a lot of states right now and are actively trying to pass medical aid and dying legislation, for example, in Massachusetts and New York. What we're also finding is that a lot of our medical aid and dying laws, there are so-called safeguards, which are barriers for people, and it prevents them from access medical aid and dying. So we are starting to go back and improve laws. For example, in Oregon, they now have the ability to waive the 15-day waiting period. And then in New Mexico this year, they passed legislation so that it has a 48-hour waiting period between requesting the medication and getting it filled. And they have the ability to waive that waiting period if the individual will not survive it. We are also trying to pass similar legislation in Hawaii to reduce their waiting period and also to allow APRNs the ability to either prescribe or consult. So not only are we working to pass legislation across the country, we are working to improve laws so that people have better access to those laws. So Without trying to be presumptuous, because you've done such amazing work on this, but my observation is, Christina Goodwin, is that getting more people on board to pass this law in California provided improvements in other states that have the option, but those safeguards were yet a deterrent that needed to be removed. So there was a lot that got done, even though the sunset clause remains in the law. So there were gains that maybe the net benefit really is going to outweigh the extra labor that's going to be required later on to re-adopt this law in 10 years. Yes. And in fact, you know, it'll help those patients that are trying to access this option. So any kind of effort that we make towards improving laws or getting them passed. It all comes down to the terminally ill individual who wants this option. Right. Well, I thank you very much for taking the time to be with us. We're recording this the day after the long holiday weekend. So I'm asking a lot of Christina Goodwin's time. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader. Thank you so much, Claudia. I appreciate it. My guest was Christina Goodwin. She is the California-Hawaii State Manager for Compassion and Choices and the Compassion and Choices Action Network. Well, that's my wrap. Next week, we're going to hear from Davin Phoenix, UCI's Poli Sci Prof, has all this good stuff for us. Folks, this is Giving Tuesday. Our website's cup is out for you to toss some change into it. Go to KUCI.org and hit the Donate to KUCI button. That's all for today. Thanks for listening, everyone. Talk to you next week.